you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. To the Outstanding Ohioans. Podcast. Podcast. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioans show. I'm your host, Ron Silico, and today in episode 26 will be part two of our interview with coach and author Matt Kramer. I hope everyone was really getting excited and getting into the part one of our interview, and we have two more parts to go. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. Thank you. You accept the position. How important are the first couple weeks? I, I mean, I think, I think that it's like anything else. I mean, the, the, the two impressions that last the longest are the first impression you give somebody and the last one. Um, if either of those two are bad, a lot of the good things in the middle you do are going to be forgotten. So, you know, you, you got to go in there with a plan. And, you know, I'd like to say that the plan is do A, do B, and do C. But some of that, it, it has to be adjusted according to when you get the job and what the circumstances are. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, what Randy and I try to do in, in that particular chapter is just give guys some, some ideas to choose from. Um, you know, what, what, what are you going to do? when you first get the job. Like, when I got hired at Milton, I was in Ohio. You know, I got, Ohio, I got hired here, uh, I got hired for the film job. On July 1st, I was living in, in Maslin, in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a feeling I was going to get the job, but, like, we didn't move the next day. So my first move when I got the job at Milton was to collect the game films from the, the prior year. Not so much to scout the opposing teams, but just to scout my returning personnel and get a feel for what basketball looked like down here. And now with the social media um, that we have and, you know, the, the, you know, the texting, the Twitter and all that stuff, I, I got with all my returning players right away, you know, got their phone numbers and you know, we started a group text mm-hmm. and we started to get to know each other. Now I called each of them first before I texted them, uh, but I wanted to hear their voices. And then what I did was, I mean, and obviously these are very different circumstances to get a new job in your backyard. But, um, you know, we planned, my wife and I planned a couple trips to come down here uh, and watch them play in their AAUs. So, like, I've got, uh, on my first team, I had uh, the Lewis brothers. Uh, Mo Lewis, who actually scholarship to Navy, he's there on a basketball scholarship right now. And his brother Chris is my six foot nine uh, potential McDonald's All-American who'll be a senior for me next year. Uh, Chris is is uh, actually shunned some of the bigger basketball schools in the country to um, accept an offer to go play for Tommy Emmerker at Harvard because he's also a four-point student with a third mm-hmm. ACT that wants to be a mechanical engineer. So you're talking about a dynamic family. The first thing I want to do is get to know those two kids. Mm-hmm. Um, their, da- their dad is Mo Lewis, who played linebacker for the New York Jets for 13 seasons sure. and went to four Pro Bowls and is a borderline Hall of Fame candidate um, at some point is going to get some consideration for that. And it's been kind of a cool thing because through coaching his two sons, I've gotten to be pretty good friends with Mo. Uh, and it's it's fun to sit down and uh, and watch an NFL game with a former NFL player, uh, especially since Mo is the guy who hit Drew Bledsoe and knocked him out that put Tom Brady in the game for the first time. So, uh, you know, he's a he's an interesting guy from a lot of different standpoints. Like I said, I got to meet a lot of interesting people from – I'm writing the book, and that was one of them. So when I got the job here at Milton, it was a lot different than when I took the job at Cam South. It was a lot different than when I took the job at Fairless. And so well, we had a whole myriad of, of different ideas for guys to, you know, to pick from. Mm-hmm. But to make sure you've got a plan, you know what I mean? Don't mm-hmm. don't just say, okay, I'm a head coach now, and you know, when does practice start? You you gotta 
you got to build up to that. And there's a lot of different things you can do. And I think the book gives some pretty good ideas on that um, between Randy and myself. Mm-hmm. The importance of choosing a staff. Yeah, it's um, it's a staff is make or break. Um, you know, it, honestly, at it, Fairless, it, it made me the coach that I was. Um, and it can sound in some ways it broke me. And um, it's not it's not because they people they were bad coaches. You know, number one, it's about it's about loyalty. Um, it's about loyalty, and I, I say this and. You know, I don't think I'll ever change this. I think I said at the beginning, I'm a big relationships guy, and I believe that, you know, a championship culture means that everybody is invested in the next guy fully and committed to them. And that also means becoming friends. And so it's really, really important for me to have assistants that are also willing to be my friend. And, you know, I don't necessarily mean hanging out every night, but I mean, you know, wanting to come over on a Saturday night and play bread with my family. Um, you know, play some cards, watch a basketball game. Um, their kids play with my kids. I and mean, I think that those are important things because when you don't have that, um, you don't necessarily get disloyalty, but, but sometimes, you know, every assistant coach is going to be out in public at some point and they're going to be confronted by a fan, a parent, somebody in the community that's going to ask a question about why, why did that head coach do this? And the bottom line is if, if that assistant coach can't say to whoever asked that question, Hey man, that's that's our guy. You know, he did that because he knows what he's doing. I'm 100 percent behind him. And next question, because we're not going to talk about that, then you don't have a very good assistant coach. Mm-hmm. You know, any entertaining of that question with that that fan beyond this is the way we do it because he's our head coach and that's the way we decide to do it is bad for your program. Now that doesn't mean that I want to head. I want an assistant coach that behind closed doors is going to tell me I'm wonderful all the time because I need assistant coaches that are going to tell me when I'm wrong. But it needs to happen behind a closed door because otherwise what you end up with is a lot of different people getting a lot of different opinions, and that's never good for a head coach. And it's not good for a basketball program because that that tears at the fiber um, of the program, and it doesn't just upset the staff. It it also ultimately will upset the players because they're not going to know which voices to listen to anymore. So. You know, my big thing with that chapter is read that one carefully. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail with that. But if you're going to be a coach, you know, or if you're going to be a leader of any kind where you're going to have people under you that are working for you, uh, read that chapter carefully because there, there's a pretty strong message there. If you, don't, if you don't get the right group there of people that are going to be behind you, then it's going to end up bad. Um, you know, it's just going to. And if you allow that to happen, it's your fault. It's not their fault. You know, it's yours because it's your job ultimately to pick that staff. So, um, you know, that's my take on that one. I think that's probably the strongest chapter in the book, um, mm-hmm. if, you, if you had to ask me. Mm-hmm. Promotion of the program. Promotion of the program is big. Um, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot of cool things you can do nowadays with high school basketball that you couldn't do back when I first started. Because just the technology has gotten to be so much better that, like now, one of the first things I like to do, and I've done this with my last two programs, it took us a few years to do it at Fairless as the technology evolved, um, is, is to come up with a logo, you know, something that brands the program. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that that's huge. I think that, and I think I even use these analogies um, or these comparisons in the book. You know, when you see that NY on a hat, you know, you know it's the New York Yankees that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And whereas you're never going to get a worldwide recognition of your brand logo, 
um, you will get it in your community. And when people see it, they'll latch onto it. And so I think that's one of the, one of the really cool first things you can do um, as a head coach in today's day and age is, is, is get a logo, you know, find a, a graphic arts um, place that, that, that will do it for you and have them, you know, tell them basically what you, I'm not an artist at all, so I don't even try to draw it. I just tell them, listen, here's, here's some of my thoughts, and I, I just kind of verbalize it to them. And I say, give me six or seven things to look at. And it's amazing what these people can do, um, you know, in their shops now. And they come back with six or seven, and we got a really neat one in Milton right now that has just taken off, and it's on T-shirts and sweatshirts and baseball hats. And, you know, you see it all over the place now. It's on our uniforms now. After, after two years, we've gotten... Uh, three new sets of uniforms, and it's on there, and, and people identify with it. You know, I mean, that's the biggest thing. You want to give your program an identity, and you know, without without losing, you know, the tradition of the program, um, you want to make sure that, that that people know, you know, that's yours. That, that, that this, you know, this is what your program um, is represented by, and you know, it's been a lot of fun doing that. And uh, it, it's it's uh, you know, it's kind of cool when you you know when you when you live in a community, you work in a community, you, know, you walk out in the middle of July and you see somebody with a t-shirt on it that you design or with a t-shirt on that you design from your logo. And um, so we had that at Milton, you know, we had it at Camp South, and we, we had it at Fairless, and um, you know, I think that that's big. Uh, you know, the other things are, you know, just 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 making your games and events. You know, I mean, we do a, a meet the teams every year where we bring an opponent in, and it's an exhibition game. Um, you know, we run it kind of like an NBA game where there's a, a three-point shootout at the end of each quarter where if the person makes the three-point shot, they get $100. And it's like a 50-50 raffle. And, um, you know, we feed the other team. And, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do connected to basketball to, to get the community excited about it. And I, and I think Randy really is the master of that. Um, you know, from the standpoint of what a head coach can get from Randy's material, I, I don't think there's any better thing to, to read than his part. Um, on program promotion in our book. I think that mm -hmm. he, he's done everything from Gus Macker style three-on-three -three tournaments where there was a circus tent in town and parades. And, I mean, you name it, Randy's done it. Um, he's, mm -hmm. he's, he had the tip-off dinner at, at uh, Hoover where he brought in uh, Jim, the real Jimmy Chitwood. Um, mm -hmm. What was his name? I got a chance to see him speak that night. Uh, Bobby Plump, I think, was right. his name. Yep. And he was the actual guy that, that the, the Chitwood character was was uh, crafted after in the movie Hoosiers. And, you know, he had Oscar Robinson in to speak at his. Jim Comey came in to speak, uh, spoke. Charlie Manuel spoke. The, uh, the Phillies won the World Series. Um, you know, Randy's done it all. I mean, he's got done it all. And, um, and as far as promotions go, he's the best that, that I've ever been around. Um, uh -huh. And it's, uh, you know, that that's from, from, from my, my opinion. Um, that's his best piece of the book. If, you, if you're a young coach and you're just starting out or you want to start out and you want to get some ideas to put in your portfolio that you could sell in an interview, um, you know, read Randy's piece on program promotion because it's second to none. You know, if, if I had to rate top five ideas out of the book, I, I'm sure I could think of them, but I know one that would be on the list is the Little Dribblers program. Can you talk oh, about that amazing. a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, the little dribblers program that Randy had at, at, at Charlie and Hoover, um, those kids were so good at what they did that they were being asked to to, um, to perform in the Macy's Parade. They were performing at halftime at Cavaliers games. Um, I used to say when LeBron was here, and now LeBron's back, um, mm -hmm. I'll say it. Um, they've been up there to do that. They've, they've traveled to Notre Dame games to perform. Um, I mean, they've been everywhere. And the cool thing about that as far as program promotion goes is it, 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 it 
really, um, there's so many different reasons it's good. First of all, what better way to teach young kids how to play basketball than to get them in a program where they're doing that yeah. and, and they're performing and, you know, they're taking pride in how, how well they can do it. Um, so you're developing skill. Um, the next thing is obviously you're raising funds for the program. So you're, you're, you're doing that um, and you're building skill. And now they're performing at halftime. So instead of halftime being, you know, seven minutes where, you know, people don't have anything to do and they may be leaving or walking out of the gym and missing the first few minutes of the third quarter, you know, you're keeping, you're keeping your home court advantage uh, right at the beginning of the third quarter because people are sitting in their seats watching these kids perform. They're doing amazing things. I mean, they're doing things that, I mean, I played in college. And I can't do some of the things they were doing with the ball. Um, incredible stuff. You know, set to music, choreograph. Um, it was like a, a, a mini basketball ballet. And, you know, it, 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 was an, it really is, it is an amazing thing. Uh, beyond that, the next thing it does is, you know, obviously the community's going to love it, but if you've got 60 kids doing that at halftime, they've each got parents, you know. So you're talking about a parent or two for each of those kids at least. And don't think that grandma and grandpa and aunt and uncle aren't coming to watch that stuff. So you've just increased your um, home crowd by, you know, exponentially. And so it just doesn't, it doesn't get any better than that program. We piloted that um, and started it here at Milton. It's not something you can snap your fingers and say it's going to look the way you want it to look. Um, but we did have 55 kids um, in our program um, this past year. And it's something now that parents are asking, are you going to do that again next year? And so, you know, it also feeds into our summer camp. You know, if kids that are into little dribblers, they want to be in the next thing that we offer and the next thing. And so, like I said, it's not just a fundraiser. It's not just a, a show that you're putting on. Um, it's also generating a program. It's generating generations mm-hmm. of basketball players that, that want to come and play for whatever school you're, you're at, okay? And they're taking pride in it, and they want to be great at it. So by the time they get to you, if they've been in a little dribblers from the time they were in third grade, and now they're ninth graders, you don't have to ask them to take ownership anymore. They've already done that. You know what I mean? The ownership is there. You know, that's their four years to shine now. Kind of like when I got to Hoban, I spent my whole life wanting to play at Hoban. So every game, okay, I wanted to give everything I had for Hoban because that's all I ever wanted to do was play there. And you, you're building that type of, of culture and that, that family and that caring, that investment through that program while you're raising funds and putting people in the stands and selling your brand. And it's, it is. It's a great one. I mean, it's a great one. And it's, it's uniquely Randy's. Um, I know he took it from... I believe Blackhawk High School and Sean Miller, who's the Arizona coach uh, right now, was actually one of the little dribblers that was dribbling when he first saw it when Blackhawk came to Camp McKinley, as the story goes in the book. But, uh, you know, Randy took it to a whole other level, and it was a lifeblood of his program that won, you know, he won three AP State pole championships um, in his years of coaching and uh, took two trips to the Final Four. So I think that pretty much speaks for itself. Yes, as, as, a, as a player who had to chase dribblers around the court when they went to the to their delay game very right. very effective at that level wasn't that annoying i mean i coached <laughs> against randy one time and, and you know this twice and the second time i coached against him we had, we probably had the better team i had a kid who was out a kid named jerry first theory had a concussion the night before and didn't play and you know he was an all-state player and if you look up his name jerry uh the other i guess last week his senior year he was 112 for 121 from the foul line, which is fifth all-time in the state of Ohio for a season. Wow. Uh, we didn't have him that night, and we had won the night before. 
but they got ahead of us, and he had, yeah, let's say for Triway, he was probably one of his average teams. It wasn't a great team. Um, but they beat us, and the reason is, is just what you said. We played them in the pit, and you felt like you were down there in the, you know, in the Lions pit, uh, yes. like in, in, in the Coliseum in ancient Rome. And they get a little bit of a lead, and they got five guys on the floor that can do anything they want with the ball as far as dribbling it, and you can't do anything with them when they get ahead. So you start fouling, and they know there's a foul shot, and that's how they beat you. Yep. I mean, that's the, that, you know, that was, that was pretty much the blueprint there for him for a lot of years. In the next next chapter in the book, you talked about daily practice rituals. Yeah, biggest thing for me with the daily daily practice ritual is, is the practice the, the practice plan should reflect what you want your team to look like on game night. And I know that that sounds like it's you know it's kind of a captain obvious comment, um, but I've been around some practices where I walk out of the gym and I'm not sure what you know what they're trying to get good at. The, the best coaches that I've ever watched practice. You watch them practice, and you watch them play, and you know that that, that practice was planned out to an absolute T because it looked like that when they played their next game. And, you know, with me, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in using a three-point shot, and so we have to get a lot of three-point shots up, and I'm a big believer in the running game. Um, you know, we have a transition game that we call fire, and we break that down into three segments, and... You know, the bottom line is, is every time we do a drill, um, there's some type of transition involved, whether it's from offense to defense or defense to offense. So, like, if we're working on something offensive, let's say we're working on a set play, um, you know, then, then for offense to defense to offense, three possessions always. If it's the other way, you know, it's defense to transition offense back to defense because if you're going to preach a running game and say we're going to be a running team, it's going to be something that's drilled into their head. And so what, what you would see in one of my practices is that, that we commit to that. You know, we commit to getting our kids a lot of shots during the course of the practice, and we commit to doing things that are going to get us better at our running game, regardless of what other skill we're working on. Um, and that, that doesn't vary too much. I mean, sure, there's a few things where we, you know, we settle in a half court where we're focused on especially at the beginning of the year, guarding a particular screen or how we're going to guard a ball screen or down screen or you know, whatever the case may be. And there's some offensive breakdown, obviously, we do with skills that we're not necessarily running up and down the floor. But even in that, you know, if we're going to shoot, if we're going to run, you know, one of the things that we run for is, is open threes. So there, we have to do transition drills, um, even in individuals where we're working on shooting three in transition. So, you know, the biggest thing is if you plan it out for the minute, um, you know, definitely have some objectives, and the objectives should be that you're, you're getting better at the things that, that your team does every single day. Um, I think when I first started coaching, I, I was because I've done so much scouting as, a, as an assistant coach, I was probably too caught up in the scouting report, and sometimes overcoached and forgot about just continuing to do the things that, that we were good at. And, you know, after a few years, and really the, the tournament run in 2007 was the thing that taught me, we didn't worry too much about what the other team was doing. We had an idea offensively. Um, and if we had kind of caught a hold of a team, uh, like Marlington was our first game that year where they, they were very set-oriented, where we thought we could walk through some of their sets and you know blow it up in, in certain spots, and we would do that. But ultimately, we felt like we're going to go in the game, and here's what we're going to do. Okay, We're going to run our transition game, and we're going to do this on offense, we're going to do this on defense. And if we can make the other team worry more about us to the point where they're passing um, that's a victory for us before the game starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we played Kansas 
game. She goes, you know, normally you're not like this. She said, you, you, you like, it's almost like you know you're going to win tonight. And it was a weird thing, you know, coming from my wife because, you know, first of all, you get in game mode, you're not sure how much she's paying attention to your mood. <laughs> but I must have been, I don't know, especially relaxed that day. And she asked, and I said, well, you know, I, I think we, I think we're going to win. And she said, well, you don't really say that. You know, what's different? I said, I don't think that Ken South will, will try to beat us. I don't think they'll take enough shots to beat us. And it didn't make much sense to her. And then I explained to her, you know, well, we run. You know I mean? We want to get the ball to the backboard. We want to run. And I, I know how they are. They're going to they're gonna spend the whole week worrying about our running game. So they're going to get guys back on defense to try to keep us from getting to our transition. And what that means is they've got one advantage, and it's that they're bigger than us. But if they're getting their big guys back in transition on defense, then they're not trying to get offensive rebounds. That's mm-hmm. the one place where they could beat us. And I just don't feel like I just feel like if they if they if they do that, if they try to stop us from running, that they're actually playing right into our hands. And that's exactly what happened. It was a low scoring game, so they did keep the score down, but we got enough of our running game going to where we just took more shots than they did. Um, they they didn't utilize the advantage they had and as a young coach that wouldn't have been something that I would have seen. You know, I mean, I spent the whole week obsessing about keeping them off the boards and not leaking out into our transition game. And instead, I said, you know what? We're going to play the way we play. You know, I mean, we've been practicing like this. We've had 64 practices or whatever is going in this game. We're not going to change now to try to beat Kansas out. Let them change to try to beat us. And mm-hmm. I think when you when you go to organize a practice, I think it's the best way to do it. Next chapter, you talked about player conduct and discipline. I think we already have covered that. Sure. Uh, yeah, we next... did uh, with, with, with Gerald. I mean, yeah. um, you know, that, that was that was one. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people think discipline means punish. It doesn't mean punish. You know, it's not what you do to somebody. It's what you do for somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think that Lou Holtz actually wrote that um, in his book. Um, that might be, a, I think it's a quote that I took from his book and, and used in there, actually. But it's true. You know, I mean, it's true. You know, it's, it's not yelling and screaming. Some people think that if you're not a yeller and a screamer, although, I mean, I've got a big mouth, I can do that too, that you're not disciplined. And that's not the case. You know, a lot of discipline comes behind closed doors in a very um, civil tone of voice. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge part. You, if, you, if you don't have discipline, then you don't, you, you, you might as well not be the coach. You know, like I said, if I had allowed Gerald to miss that practice and just, sat him down and said, hey, listen, don't do it again, or else. Then what happens is, is the other guys see that, well, you know what, he's afraid of the top dog. He's not going to discipline that guy. So I'm going to test him, too. And when he tries to discipline me, I'm going to raise holy you-know-what because he didn't do anything to Gerald. And you, you have to see that as a leader. You know I mean? It's not going to be pleasant, and it, it may even be brutally awful um, to have to do it. But you have to have some standards. And you have to hold everybody accountable to it. And if you don't, you don't intend to hold the best player to a rule, then don't make the rule. That's that's kind of my philosophy on that. I think that's kind of what plays out in the book. Mm-hmm. Your next chapter, you talk about off-season planning, and it's it's not it's much more in depth than yes, you guys need to practice in the off-season. You need to have skill development. You need to go to camps. Sure. There were some real unique thoughts in that chapter related to where you're at as a team and in, in, in terms of levels of competitiveness and skill development. Uh-huh. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? 
Yeah, that, I think that, I think I had a lot of fun writing that chapter because it kind of took me back to the rebuilding plan that we had at Fairless. Um, and we went through a pretty good period there when I first got the job. Uh, I had some decent players that, that came back. Nobody really knew much about them. They didn't play, but the, the, the team I took over um, had had a really good year the year before. They, they had a bunch of juniors that were pretty good that just never played because they were behind a bunch of seniors that were really good. And so we had a really good first year, and then we got a transfer in our second year. Um, Jerry followed me over from Canton South, uh, pressed there, and he was an all-high guard. So we had, a, we had a good year that second year and won the conference championship. And had some pretty good players left for that third year. We actually finished second in the conference and were rated as highly as fifth in the state. Um, and then after that, we graduated everybody. I mean, we graduated nine seniors off that third team. And our JV team was not very good. Uh, when I took the job at Fairless, our 7th and 8th grade team and ninth grade team, that first year I was there, combined to win one game. I mean, combined, three teams. You're talking one and like 60, um, however many it was. And it was honest. I mean, there just wasn't a whole lot going on with the program as far as the theater program had gone there. And when we were working on that, um, you know, from, from down below, and it, it, it utilized that. But the bottom line is we had those players that were entering the high school. And so we went through a couple of years that were, were, were pretty dry um, until our first class of kids that had come through our youth program got there. And when they entered as ninth graders, we were getting our doors beat off because um, they were playing as ninth graders. Well, they really would have been better off playing JV or freshman ball. And so what happened was they played varsity and, and, and took some beatings. And what that, what that does, it gives kids experience. But if you don't stroke that the right way as a head coach, um, what happens is, you demoralize kids, and they go find other things to do. And so, what we did that that first off season, we, we went three and eighteen, uh, and actually lost I think sixteen games in a row from from late the middle of December through the, the, the later parts of February. Uh, we took we took our incoming eighth graders and put them with our ninth graders that had played varsity that year, and we took them to a JV camp instead of to a varsity camp. And what I told my you know, my ninth graders to be 10th graders and my incoming 8th graders to say, listen, you ain't never going to get a JV season. You're never going to get one. So I'm going to show you what it's going to be like when you get to be a little bit older by putting you in a JV league. And so, you know, we did. Uh, we went to a four-day camp, and we played four games a day, and we went 16-0 um, at, at that camp. And, you know, a lot of people were fussing at the camp. Oh, well, you know, those are varsity players. And it was, it was kind of ironic because some of the same guys that were fussing we're using juniors, and we didn't have any juniors. We had kids who were going to be sophomores and kids who were going to be freshmen. And they were special kids, you know, and I wanted to see, you know, don't don't let the record define you right now because when 14-year-olds play against 18-year-olds, 18-year-olds typically win. You know, I mean, if you go to the park and you're playing pickup ball you're, and you're an 18-year-old, you're not going to pick four 14-year-olds to, to walk out on the floor with you and play against a bunch of 18-year-olds. And the message was pretty simple. Um, here's what we do. This is what happens when you play against guys your age. You're getting experience at the varsity level that these guys aren't getting, so it'll be doubled, the, the, the discrepancy, by the time you know you get to be a little bit older. And it was powerful. You know, it was really, really powerful. Um, we, you know, we got some T-shirts that year as camp champions, and uh, I took them to the, to the local uh, T-shirt shop. We got them back, and on the back we printed the words, the, uh, the start of something big. And it was, you know, it was um, the start of something big. And a lot of those kids, you know, when we got when they got to be juniors and we started to win games at the varsity level, 
you hear them say things like, this is why we went to that camp and we were fresh. This is why we went to that camp. It, 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 it's our time now. And, you know, that's powerful when you're not the guy saying it. When you're the coach and you hear the guy saying what you would say if you had to talk, that becomes very powerful. And um, that may be, you know, it's funny because people, when I, when I did the interviews about some of the Coach of the Year jobs, uh, Coach of the Year awards I won, you know, they asked me what the key to it was. And I, I would always tell them two things. Um, that camp, you know, that's where I won that Coach of the Year award, that camp, because it gave those kids the confidence that there's no way that they were going to get any other way. Um, I couldn't make them get older fast enough to be really great the next year, and I couldn't undo the 18 games they lost the year before, but I could show them, you know, what they were, what they were capable of becoming if they continued to work hard. And the second place that I won that Coach of the Year award was not giving up when we were 0-12, um, you know, the following year because those kids were still young. I mean, we lost our 12th game, and we practiced the next morning. You know, a lot of coaches would have said, you know what, we're on 12. We're not going to win games this year. Let's just take the weekend off. And I, I, I could see from where I was sitting that we needed to, to do very basic, very rudimentary skills, um, you know, from, from just making a basic rotation, our man-to-man defense. We had to keep practicing. And so that's what we did, you know. And so you have to be a little creative sometimes. Um, on the flip side of that, once we got to be good, we won the district championship in 2007. Uh, we sent our resume, our team resume, to, to uh, Chapel Hill to the Roy Williams team camp where they accept 24 teams and, uh, you know, from all around the country. There were teams there from California and Utah and, you know, you name it, they were there and we got in that. So the year after we won that district, those same kids that we put in the JV camp when they were varsity players when they were younger were playing in the Dean Smith Center on center court with Tyler Hansborough keeping the score clock, who was the, he was the college player of the year that year, you know, against the team that won the state championship from Utah. So, you know, you're talking about, you know, moving from one end of the, of the uh, spectrum to the other. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's, that's kind of what I sell in that particular uh, chapter. You know, don't get locked in on doing the same thing every year. Do what's developmentally right for your program. Um, you know, if it's taking them to North Carolina to play against the best teams in the country, then go to North Carolina. If it's, you know, going to a JV camp so that they can get a little confidence that they can't do it any other way, you know, don't, don't be so, I'm not sure if the word is macho, but don't be so, you know, centered on your pride um, that, that you're not willing to do that for kids because they, they need both. They need to be challenged, but they need to be challenged without having their confidence taken from them. So uh, that, that, I think that was a pretty good chapter um, mm-hmm. for, for anybody who's, who's building, rebuilding a program. Mm-hmm. I, I I agree. I, I really enjoyed that chapter because it the focus was on improvement. It wasn't about, like you said, trying to compete at the level that they were going to be at in the regular season. Yeah. You know what? It was a blast. That JV camp was a blast. Um, we, I mean, I, 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 it was a bonding experience for those kids. They were just happy to be going anywhere. Um, you know, after the tough season they had had especially, and now we were interjecting a couple eighth graders that were really good, and, you know, there was a real buzz in that gym about our program. And that was, that in itself was powerful because we had been beaten down the year before, for lack of a better way of saying it, because it, it, it is demoralizing. And it wasn't because we had bad, but we had great practices that year. People would ask me, how you doing? How you doing? And if they asked me on any day but a game day, I would tell them I'm doing great. Because honestly, these kids are hungry, man. They're sponges. They love the game. They want to be there. They, 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 they're, they're cherishing the opportunity. And our practices, if you watched in there, they were great practices. But they were practicing against other kids who were 14 and 15. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we, we were playing games against you know some of the best teams in Ohio at the Division Two and Division Three level with a couple Division One mixed in, and that's just never going to work out well with fourteen-year-olds. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care who they are, and uh, and and just to to put those kids in that environment and and allow them to be because there's a you know you're a bunch of parents there watching young kids play. I mean, there was a real buzz about what we were doing. I mean, we were running the floor. We were into a, into a you know, a real attack mode in our fast break. We had a little secondary break concept that we were pretty good at. We had three kids on the floor who could really shoot the three. Um, you know, we had a six-foot-three, uh, you know, kind of a hybrid-type big that could step out on the floor and, and do some different things. And, I mean, people were talking about them in a positive light, and it was just good for them to hear, hey, that's, that's a nice group of kids. Um, and it was, it was powerful. I mean, it was really, really powerful. And... Um, you know, I didn't know that, that, that it was the, the, the good move it was at the time. I thought it was the right thing. But, you know, honestly, in retrospect, it was probably the key turning point, um, you know, in getting that program stepping toward where we ended up there at Fairless. And, uh, and like I said, it's a, it's a group of kids that I'm still really close with. Mm-hmm. X's and O's. It's probably the smallest chapter in the book, or pretty darn close to it. Uh, but yeah. talk about that. I, you know, it's, it's ironic that that's the smallest chapter because um, I love X's and O's. You know, I love them. Um, I, I mean, I study them. Uh, you know, if I'm not coaching in season, I'm studying them. You know, when I get off the phone here, I'll be watching March Madness and I'll have my legal pad in my lap and, um, you know, I'll, I'll try to find things that fit into um, the things that we're trying to do at Milton um, because there's always something. Um, and, and if I, you know, see whatever Kentucky's running, they're going to put out a video this summer. Everybody's going to try to do what they're doing on offense. So I, I want to know what, what everybody's doing so that when I see it, um, we know how to defend it. So I'm a big X's and O guy. Um, it's not that I would say it's unimportant. The reason that we didn't include too much of it in our book is because it's been over time. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in, in all honesty, and I'm not, and I'm not, so I'm not to name any names. I've seen some really good X and O videos and some good X and O books, but there's some really bad ones out there too. And it's not because they were done poorly. It's because if you take an offense like the triangle offense, okay, and you run a 45-minute video on it, there is no way that, that you can show all the odds and ends in that offense to give somebody so that they can then go on the floor and teach that offense to their team. There's just not. There's just not enough. It's 45 minutes is enough time. I mean, it's it's it, it's taken teams a full year, professionals in that system, to master it. There's no way that you can show coaches how to run that in a 45 minute video. And I'm not picking that particular offense because there's some great videos on it. But the fact of the matter is, other people can watch those videos too. And if all you know is what you see on the video, then you don't really know the offense because sooner or later someone's going to jump that and they're going to make you do something else. And if you don't know the offense well enough to coach it, then you don't really have an offense. So I'm a big believer that you you know you get some things that you like, and, and my offense is is um, it's kind of just evolved over the years as as my personnel has changed and as my philosophy has evolved. And I'm not really married to anything. Um, you know, we we were a two guard team at uh, front at Fairless with some Princeton and some Triangle mix. Um, into it with my own touch. Uh, I brought that here. We run it some, but we've got a dominant post player here. Um, and so that doesn't necessarily fit. We've also got a, a 
it's all a matter of personnel. Um, and like I said, I think the best way to learn X's and O's, honestly, is to sit down and talk to another coach um, after you've watched video on him and ask him, okay, I like what you're doing here, but what if they do this on defense? Mm-hmm. Because until you get into those what ifs, then you're not going to be able to coach your players. And if you take somebody else's offense on the floor, you can teach it in practice, and it might work really well. But in the first game, when they come into the huddle and your player says to you, hey, coach, you told me to do this, but here's what they're doing, so I can't do it. If you don't have an adjustment for them, or if you haven't taught them what to do, then you've got a problem. So I've always, um, you know, I always tell young coaches, be real careful not to fall in love with the fat offense. Um, you know, run, run something that you can teach, run something that you can coach, and run something that you can adjust. Because the fact of the matter is, Tex Winter is the architect of the triangle offense, and Pete Carrill is the architect of the Princeton offense. And I'm not Tex Winter, and I'm not Pete Carrill. <laughs> so I better have Matt Kramer's offense, right. because that's the only one I'm going to be able to, to effectively teach my players. So um, that's kind of what comes out in that particular uh, chapter. Um, you'll also see a little bit about how we kind of morphed into a, a full-blown uh, running team in that chapter, too. And, and honestly, um, you know, it was the triway thing. And the triway was big and they were strong and we were little with skilled perimeter players. And it didn't do us any good to walk the ball off the floor and try to go toe-to-toe with a bigger, stronger team. We had to make our own game. And so rather than play triway on their terms, um, you know, we, we tried to build a program at Fairless to where triway would have to play us on our terms. Mm-hmm. And it, essentially that's what happened and that's how we ended up beating them. Um, we, we made it a running game where they wanted it, a slugfest and a half court. And eventually, you know, our way, our culture, you know, uh, our system and our skilled players overcame, uh, you know, what had been the best Division II program in the state of Ohio for a three-year period. That concludes part two of our interview with coach and author Mac Kramer on the Outstanding Ohioan Show, episode 26. Please take the time to tune in to part three of the interview on episode 27. Also, please take the time to go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review, how you like the show. That'll help get the word out, provide feedback on how I can add more value to you. And if you have any guests that you think I should reach out to an interview or that you could connect with me, please take the time to do so. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great day.